In today's podcast, I'm going to take you on a journey back through time. We'll start with the most modern, dark, and disturbing version of Santa ever created. At least I hope it is. We will turn to a grumpy green guy to see what he can teach us. We'll spend a brief time in the 1800s in the home of a professor, around Christmas, of course. Then we'll travel to the Netherlands, back through the Reformation, and finally back to the original guy himself, as we ask the question, will the real St. Nick please stand up? Welcome to the Sky Pilot Podcast that explores questions of faith, spirituality, and religion. I'm Dan Matthews, and I don't have all the answers, but I do enjoy the questions. Welcome to the podcast where every question is an invitation into a spiritual quest, and you're invited along for the journey. Have you seen the bumper stickers, billboards, Facebook posts reminding you, me, all of us, where our focus is supposed to be if you're a Christian during this season? Most of the time they say something like this, Jesus, the reason for the season. Sometimes this sentiment is even depicted in art. There are plenty of examples of Santa dressed in full fur adorned red regalia, kneeling next to the baby Jesus who's lying in the manger. And the point of this kind of art is, I think, self-evident. It's meant to tell us that even Santa takes a knee in the presence of Jesus. Now, as someone who's trained to look at things theologically, there's a problem with this kind of art. It implies that Santa predates Jesus. And in Christianity, we have spent a lot of time theologically arguing over what predates what. So in doing so, in having this kind of art implying that Santa predates Jesus, we could promote the idea that Jesus is actually secondary to Santa because he got there first. Besides, the Santa character is an interesting guy, and he's been undergoing a pretty steady process of evolution for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. So I thought I would talk a little bit about Santa and see if I could walk us backwards to where it all began. Yes, instead of starting at the beginning and working our way into the present time, I'm going to begin now and work our way backwards through time. Think of this as a kind of remake of the movie, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, the Santa edition. So this year, there's a new Christmas movie that's being released just in time for the holidays, and it's called Violent Night. Perhaps you've seen some of the ads for it. It is the story. Now, I haven't seen it. I've gone and looked it up online. So here's the synopsis as I understand it. It is the story of a disillusioned, burned-out Santa who discovers that the estate of a very wealthy family has been invaded by mercenaries, and Santa comes to the aid of this family rather violently and graphically. It's a dark comedy, I understand. We live in a world of too much violence, in my opinion, and I personally don't need more of it as entertainment, particularly around Christmas time. Oddly, if I have to be honest, and I think I do, oddly, if I have to be honest, it isn't the violence that really bothers me about this movie. Okay, it is the violence, but that wasn't the first thing I noticed when I read the synopsis. You know what bothered me? I'm sure you're wondering. What really bothered me was that of all the problems in the world that Santa could tackle, it is a fabulously wealthy family that gets rescued. Yes, 
That's exactly where we need more help in our troubled world. Think of all the families on their guarded and gated compounds who are in need of Santa's attention and help around Christmas time. Give me a break. I mean, even Scrooge came to realize that it was Tiny Tim that needed to be rescued, not the family that lived in the mansion down the road. As Chris Berman would say, Come on, man! Okay, so Violent Night is disappointing, at least to me personally, but probably to be an expected part of the natural evolution of Santa Claus, which we will track in this podcast. The truth is that we're not so much shaped by the story of Santa as the reality is that we shape Santa to reflect our own current culture. Hence, the creation of Violent Night. So my hope is to dig back through time and find something that's worth perhaps using as some sort of guidance in our lives as we seek to discover the real Santa. So let our journey begin. I'll start with my childhood. I remember being a kid and watching The Grinch. He was the anti-Santa who eventually had a conversion and became in essence Santa himself as he rode into town and distributed all the toys and presents to the people of Whoville. Forget the fact that he just stole them all the night before. The Grinch comes back to town, and in the end, we're told, yes, this is what it's all about. As the story says, Christmas Day is in our grasp as long as we have hands to clasp. And we, well, I'll just let someone else say it. Welcome, Christmas. Bring your cheer. Cheer to all who's far and near. Christmas Day is in our grasp, so long as we have hands to clasp. Christmas Day will always be just as long as we have we. Welcome Christmas while we stand, heart to heart and hand in hand. Now at one level, that's sweet, right? While we stand heart to heart, and hand in hand. Now, who can stand against that? That sounds like you'd be a pretty cold, Grinchy-like person if you didn't agree with that. But even as a kid, as I watched this, I kind of had a sense, well, a sense that this was stripping Christmas of its essence. I mean, July 30th is International Friendship Day. How does this description that we just heard from the Grinch who stole Christmas differentiate Christmas in any way from June 30th? The Grinch version of Santa and many Santas since, offers a singular and consistent message for all who will believe Christmas is about gathering together family and forming community. That's really what this time is about. So there we have it. The Grinch literally stole Christmas. So is that the reason we now have the version of Christmas, the version of Santa that we currently have? Well, actually, no. Now, if you are of a similar age to me, you might well remember hearing the true story of Christmas, how it all came about. Santa Claus, as we know him today, was largely created by two entities, Madison Avenue and the Coca-Cola Company. Now, as is often true in this kind of thing, there is a bit of truth to this story. Evidently, around 1930, Coke was trying to figure out how to bolster the sales of their product during the winter when traditionally Coke consumption plummeted. What better way to get people to drink up during the winter than showing everyone's favorite elf consuming the drink? 
I have many times heard that Coke invented the modern-day image of Santa, and I'll have to tell you, for many years, I absolutely believed this. Well, it seemed to be true. I mean, when I was growing up, we had this thing that my mother would pull out as part of our Christmas decorations every year. It was a combination of several things. It was soft and stuffed. It was in a red suit and had limbs that made it proportioned like a little baby. It wore a red hood, and the face was plastic or rubber or something like that, and it had the face of a baby. Oh, except that this little baby was bearded. And to me, the face of an angelic, bearded baby was more than a little creepy. And in its hand, it held a Coke bottle. The truth is, they could have easily done a violent night movie in my day where this strange and freakish little character went rogue. Remember this series of horror movies entitled Child's Play, I think? Yeah, starring the little red-headed character, the little red-headed doll named Chucky? Well, substitute our 1960s-era Santa doll, and he would have fit right in. Now wait just a moment. I thought you were telling us that Coke invented the cute, cuddly version of Santa, and now you're telling us about a horrifying Coke-created Santa from your childhood. I am totally confused at this point. Well, first of all, I don't think Coke intended for him to be terrifying. I'm guessing that was an accident. I'm hoping it was an accident. You do think it was an accident, don't you? And okay, I may have wandered away from the topic and drifted into a moment of personal cathartic therapy. But let's admit, that's kind of strange. It's never happened in this podcast before, huh? As it turns out, Coke didn't invent the modern Santa. Not surprisingly, no one did entirely. But, but, wait, hold on. If you must point to a place and a time when the modern-day Santa was created, and I'm talking about in the United States, well, then he was created in modern form in 1823 in New York City. Well, that's oddly specific. Yeah, isn't it? Well, it can be argued that up until that moment in time, many people understood Santa Claus to be a rather serious guy who was primarily focused on kind of the scales of justice, at least in the United States. There are those who have argued that we stripped Santa of anything serious and turned him into nothing more than someone who's cute, relatable, and wants everyone to be happy. Excuse me, are you going to tell us what happened in 1923 or not? Oh yeah, of course, sorry. In New York, there was a rather wealthy seminary professor who wrote a poem for his kids. And evidently, they loved the poem, but he did not publish it because he didn't want to be associated with it. Because, well, to him, it seemed a little bit frivolous for his public professor demeanor. But eventually, as the story goes... A family member thought it should be shared with the world. So the family member, without his permission and without his, I guess, knowledge and certainly not attaching his name to it, had it published. And when it was first published without his name, it was released with the title An Account of a Visit from St. Nicholas. It's more often known today by its title A Visit from St. Nicholas or probably even more often known popularly by just was the night before Christmas. There is a passage I want to read to you from this because it has a lot to do with what we're talking about and the development of Santa. Now, I won't start from the beginning, and I'm not going to read the whole thing as much as I really like to in this case, but just imagine that this man is awakened by Santa outside, and then as he turns to see Santa coming down the chimney, well, that's where we start. 
As I drew in my head and was turning around, down the chimney St. Nicholas came with a bound. He was dressed all in fur, from his head to his foot, and his clothes were all tarnished with ashes and soot. A bundle of toys he had flung on his back, and he looked like a peddler just opening his pack. His eyes, how they twinkled, his dimples, how merry, his cheeks were like roses, his nose like a cherry. His droll little mouth was drawn up like a bow, and the beard of his chin was as white as the snow. The stump of a pipe he held tight in his teeth, and the smoke it encircled his head like a wreath. He had a broad face and a round little belly that shook when he laughed like a bowl full of jelly. He was chubby and plump, a right jolly old elf, and I laughed when I saw him in spite of myself. A wink of his eye and a twist of his head soon gave me to know I had nothing to dread. He spoke not a word, but went straight to his work and filled all the stockings, then turned with a jerk. And laying his finger aside of his nose and giving a nod, up the chimney he rose. He sprang to his sleigh, to his team gave a whistle, and away they all flew like the down of a thistle. But I heard him exclaim, ere he drove out of sight, Happy Christmas to all! and to all a good night. Now you will notice that much of who we know Santa to be today was found right there. This poem became an overnight sensation in New York and within a very short period of time was known throughout the country. A good deal of who we have come to know Santa to be, well, it can be argued that it came from this poem. Now, some of the history of Santa is connected with some age-old Protestant-Catholic rivalries. Around the time of this poem being published, January 1st stood as the primary family gathering holiday in the United States, not Christmas, because evidently Christmas Day was seen as being associated with Catholics, so Protestants were slow to grab onto its celebration as a gathering time. When Clement Moore, he's the author, when Clement Moore's poem was published, it shifted Santa from Christmas Day to Christmas Eve and that seemed to be all the change that was necessary for Protestants to embrace the holiday as the new time of gathering together as family. Now, before I move on, there may be some of you who will argue that Clement Moore did not write a visit from St. Nicholas, and I'm aware that there's a family that contests his authorship, and we don't really need to go into that at all here, because regardless of authorship, the poem was published the year I said, and had a surprisingly powerful shaping on America and the way it understood Santa and understood Christmas. Now, having said that, let's jump several hundred years earlier. Prior to the Reformation, Catholicism was the faith throughout most of Europe, and the veneration of saints was popular among the people. Even by this time, St. Nicholas was popular in countries across Europe, and in most, he was understood to bring gifts in various forms on the day he was celebrated, which was not Christmas, that was December 6th. With the Reformation and the rise of Protestant churches, many things that were seen as associated with Catholicism were dropped, and amongst those was the veneration of saints. So two important things happened. St. Nicholas's celebration on December 6th was largely dropped, and reformers like Martin Luther moved the giving of gifts to Christmas time and tried to retell the story as Christ's child being the one who brought the gifts rather than St. Nicholas. But interestingly, the Dutch, who I can say without fear of being corrected, have a fiercely independent streak, were not put off in the slightest. And one could easily argue that 
there would be no modern-day Santa as we understand him now at all if it weren't for their delight in celebrating this saint, who may well have been otherwise forgotten had they not preserved him in their culture. Now, as I said, the day of his celebration was not Christmas, but December 6th, and he was called St. Nicholas or Sinterklaas. He was the patron saint of children and was known to leave gifts, treats for children who left their shoes out for him. The shoes were placed outside the doors of the homes, and it was customary for children to find them filled with fruits, sweets, and chocolate coins wrapped up to look like gold. And remember those coins, we're going to come back to them. It was really when the Dutch moved to New York in large numbers that all of this began to merge into a single story. And interestingly, though the reformers succeeded in moving the custom of giving gifts from December 6th to Christmas time, the legend of St. Nicholas, ever adaptable, moved right along to Christmas time as well, and is still managed to be associated with the giving and receiving of gifts. Quick aside and an interesting piece of trivia, jumping back to the poem that was written and published in New York. If you know the poem, you've certainly heard Santa calling to his reindeer, Donner and Blitzen. Now, that's the modern words that are often put into the poem. But in our house, my wife was a stickler for the older and original wording, which she's quick to point out is not Donner, but Donder. Now, as I did research for this particular episode, I learned that isn't even correct either. The original poem called these two reindeer, Dunder and Blitzen which are not intended to be German, as many people will say when they talk about this, but were intended to be derived from the Dutch words for thunder and lightning. I tell you all of this because I want to tie together how even when we got to the story, the poem in New York that shaped where we are today, it was being very strongly shaped by the Dutch story as it had come to America. So we've worked our way back through time, but we're desperate to hear from you who the actual real St. Nicholas was. Oh, sure. Let's go ahead and jump straight to him. He's officially, and I'm meaning historians know him as St. Nicholas of Myra. He lived in what is modern-day Turkey today, and he was a bishop. In truth, there is little doubt on the part of historians that he was an actual person. He's included in a list of bishops who attended the Council of Nicaea, the first of the great councils, in 325. He was born into a wealthy family. His parents died early, so he was left with a great deal of money, a great deal of wealth as a young man. And he's known to have been very generous, and eventually he gave away all of his wealth. Now, of all the stories, and there are many that are associated with him, the most famous of those stories is in regards to a man and his three daughters. The story says that there was a man with three daughters, and the man had once had some means of his own, but through some sort of evil, let's just say villainy brought about by others, he lost everything. The consequence was that his daughters would have no dowry and therefore be unable to get married. Eventually, the little sport he could manage to give them would disappear, and when he died, well, as the story goes, they would be forced into prostitution to support themselves. St. Nicholas found out about this, and he hatched a plan. One night, he took a bag of gold, enough for a dowry for one of the girls, and as the family slept, he threw it through the window of their home. The next morning, the father found the gold and immediately arranged for the marriage of his daughter. Soon, 
Another night came and St. Nicholas approached the house and again threw another bag of gold through the window. And again, the father was able to secure the safe future for his daughter. The father, not being a complete idiot, realized that his home had either begun the extremely rare occurrence of spontaneously sprouting gold or, or almost as rare, but maybe a little more believable, someone must be throwing it through the window as they slept. So no doubt wanting to believe the first was true, but settling on the second as being more likely, he waited up several nights until once again Nicholas threw a bag of gold through the window. The father rushed outside and threw himself on the ground in front of Nicholas and thanked him. Nicholas ordered the father to tell no one of the charity, a task at which the father evidently miserably failed because it is without a doubt the most famous act of charity performed by one of history's most famous saints. One version of this story has Nicholas frustrated by finding locked windows at the home, so he climbs up on the roof and throws the bag of gold down the chimney. And guess what? There just happened to be some stockings hanging on the chimney to dry, and the gold managed to fall down the chimney and into the stockings, and a tradition was born. Now, this version of the story is obviously a later adaption of the three daughters story that helped it tie into modern customs. Interestingly, there's not much we know for sure about St. Nicholas. We know his name. We know where he lived. We know when he lived. And I think it's safe to say that he lived some sort of generous and faithful life that he was remarkable enough to be remembered long after his death, and that, having done so, people continued to tell his story and embellish it. We know so little about him because we have nothing of his own creation. We have no writings from him, no theology, no letters, no sermons that he wrote with his own hand. We have nothing tangible that he created himself. Well, if that is so, and we don't have anything of his own original writings that he created himself, then he really isn't worth paying attention to, is he? Well, that's an interesting and valid point. But just as a quick reminder, we don't have any of those things from Jesus either. Oh, good point. Carry on. So St. Nicholas, the original saint, not the guy we turned him into, is honored as the patron saint of sailors and merchants, and archers, and repentant thieves, and children, and brewers, pawnbrokers, and students. It seems like a lot, doesn't it? Now, if you know anything about saints, you may think, well, that seems like everyone's trying to get in on the act. But in reality, this isn't unusual. You might think that if you are a saint, you can only be the patron saint of one thing, but that's far from the way things actually work out with saints. And many saints are patrons of many different people and causes, as is St. Nicholas. Having said that, I think they missed one. Because perhaps the thing that he should be remembered for was his working so hard at not just being generous, but giving his charity anonymously. And as we worked our way back through time from the violent to the generous version of this man, I've come to a conclusion. Perhaps we should adopt a new tradition in his honor. Give at least one significant gift each year, anonymously. 
This isn't anonymous as in you give something to someone and they thank you but don't know your name. This isn't even giving a gift anonymously to a family member. This is truly anonymous. Go out into the world, find someone you don't know, will not have a relationship with later, and give them a gift. This is making a tradition of giving a gift each year where the recipient has no idea who the giver is or was. Now, there are a bunch of ways you can do this. You can put cash in an envelope and drop it or mail it to a homeless shelter. You can arrange with someone at the grocery store that you will leave money, and after you've departed, they can use it to help pay for the groceries of a single mother who's shopping with her kids. Look, you can come up with something creative. The point is that as I read this story, the story of the real St. Nick as we worked our way back to him, I was reminded of the importance of giving without any hope, without any desire, without any reality of receiving something in return. That's all for today. Just a reminder, be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you get notified of future episodes. Also, you can find me on Facebook and YouTube. Just search for Sky Pilot Faith Quest. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, my email address is dan at skypilot.zone. S-K-Y-P-I-L-O-T dot zone. Dan at skypilot dot zone. On your spiritual journey, may you ask questions, seek answers, and boldly go wherever the quest takes you. Thanks for listening to Sky Pilot Faith Quest. I invite you to send me a question or leave a review. And remember, the sign of a strong faith, solid religion, or healthy spiritual journey is not certainty, but that you keep asking questions. <laughs> <laughs>